Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans. And I'm Virginia Allen. To say that uh, it's a crazy time in our nation right now, I think would be a dramatic understatement. Last Wednesday, I sat and watched the videos of what was going on at the Capitol as rioters pushed their way in past barricades and police officers. And I honestly just felt sick to my stomach watching all of the events unfold. And I think I've just kind of personally been processing like, okay, how how do we now move forward as a nation? And we keep hearing people sort of elusively refer to unity and the need for unity and reference unity. But when it actually comes to seeking that out and putting that desire for unity into action, it feels like there's very little movement there. And that's why this week, Virginia and I want to take some time to step away from all the craziness. I'm sure, just like both of us, it's in your social media news feeds. It's what your friends want to talk about. And just really discuss the importance of faith in this season. And, you know, I think there's a lot of false cries for unity and, you know, I, I think there's a time and place to, to reject those. But, you know, there there is something that makes us all American. And, and there is something that if you have faith in something greater, that the things like this tend to shake you less. So I've uh, just spent a lot of time um, on the phone with with my friends and, and um, you know, uh, just church this weekend just kind of hit differently and, and just knowing that there is a greater peace there. So that's what we're going to focus today on the episode. Also on Problematic Women, we will talk with Dr. Charmaine Yost, Vice President of the Institute for Family, Community, and Opportunity here at the Heritage Foundation about, again, how we can maintain faith and see unity with friends, coworkers, and family members. Plus, we discuss the upcoming March for Life. We're super excited for that. And then, you know, we really just want to lighten the mood. We welcome our colleague, Michelle Cordero on the show to give us the latest scoop on The Bachelor. And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, Please consider supporting us by leaving a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you do get your podcasts and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, let's get to it. America feels like it's really being shaken right now. For many people, the election did not go the way they wanted. And of course, there is a tremendous amount of grief and anger over the riots at the Capitol last week. And you know, even though we're seeing these calls for unities, we're not necessarily seeing action taken on those calls. So how do we move forward as a nation? And how do we move forward personally? Here to help us have that conversation is Dr. Charmaine Yost, the Vice President of the Institute for Family, Community, and Opportunity at the Heritage Foundation. Dr. Yost, welcome to the show. Hi, Virginia. Thank you so much for having me. And what a great question for us to talk about today. You are a woman of faith. And in your position at Heritage, 
you are really looking at, okay, how, how do we strengthen and protect traditional family values in America? And how do we make sure that America is always a nation that protects the free practice of religion? And furthermore, how do we, how do we build communities that can really prosper? So given that you are so involved in the fight for these core principles that we hold dear as Americans, these key American values, can you explain how you're thinking about the state of our country right now? Thanks so much for that question. I think it's a really, really critical one right now, particularly as we're just right in the middle of so much toxicity. And you're right, I have been thinking about it a lot, particularly, and even with my whole team, you know, the Institute for Family Community and Opportunity, we've been having a lot of conversations as we as we look at this actually unprecedented time. And, you know, how do we navigate forward? And I, I like the way that you framed it, because I think that it's really critical to start with the personal. There's so many things that people feel overwhelmed with right now. I personally believe that a large part of what has led to this kind of overwhelming situation we're in is that we started out last year headed into a pandemic. And so so there's kind of been this compounding of crises that has 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 really reached a tipping point. And I think anytime that you face something that feels overwhelming like that, you have to really kind of look towards what I call the center. Um, when I was growing up, my dad always used to say, you know, Charmaine, you got to nail down the center. And so I think for each and every one of us, there, there's a different question as to what that looks like. But for me personally, I've been thinking about that a lot of how do you individually um, protect your own sense of, of peace and joy and what it means to connect with others around you and fight it on an individual level? Yeah. Well, and for you personally, what has kind of been that answer? You know, you've been, this isn't your first rodeo. You have been in the field of public policy for a long time. You began your career working in the White House for President Ronald Reagan. You served as a senior advisor to Governor Huckabee's 2008 presidential campaign. You served in the Trump administration, in the White House, in the Department of Health and Human Services. So in, in all of these roles, and, and then now, how how have you kind of maintained that inner peace and joy in the midst of of the shaking that we feel like so often comes from DC? That's really funny. I I love that you say not your first rodeo because actually it just as you were as you were listing off some of the things that I've gone through in my career, I, this whole kaleidoscope of images was going through my head, and I I really have come back time and again over the last year to the fact that. Even though we've used the word unprecedented a lot, I think it's a comfort to think back over your life and really over history and think, yes, pandemic, unprecedented, but throughout human history, there have been other kinds of conflagration that our our ancestors, our family members have lived through. And you know, even as a person of faith, you think of Ecclesiastes and and um, and King David and his laments over the challenges in his lifetime. Every single generation has challenges and crises that they have to confront, and that's why we have these eternal values and and principles that we lean on um, of the core values of our faith. To be honest with you, Virginia, one of the things that I'm most concerned about 
as from a public policy perspective, looking at how the pandemic has rent the fabric of our communities is how much it has undermined churches. Churches are the foundation of, 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 um, of our communities, of our expression of our faith. And I think as people of faith, we have to fight back against some of the some of the very negative trends that that we're seeing in how not being able to gather in person has helped to fray our sense of community. I think in the beginning, even kind of going into summertime, there was this sense of novelty and being able to pull together using online tools. And obviously, we're still much further down the road, still having to lean on those kinds of things. And I would I would just encourage people at this point as we're turning the calendar into a new year to really take stock. This is what my husband and I've been doing of saying, you know, what's working for us as a family in pulling together spiritually and what's not. And how can we, how can we really kind of dig in and nail this center down and say, you know, we're not going to let the toxicity of social media run our lives. Um, Is there an equal balance between things that nourish you and feed your soul versus the things that make you anxious and and create fear? You know, I uh, I I was raised in evangelical, and and there's there's some sayings that you kind of lean back on, and and one of them, I apologize for not being able to give credit where it's due, but I always think about that saying of you know if you're feeling anxious and upset, you know whose voice are you listening to in your head? Right? It's not it's not the voice of the God of Peace who promises us to give us a peace that passes understanding. And those are kind of the eternal truths that I come back to of, of saying, I'm going to come back to the basics of my faith. Sometimes we want to look at crises and think that we've got to have some kind of really fancy response. And sometimes it doesn't have to be fancy. It can just be really basic. You know, are we feeding our soul with eternal truths or are we spending way too much time on social media that, you know, let's be honest, has more chance of making us feel anxious than not. That is so encouraging. And I think so, so practical, too. I'm really glad that you brought up that element about church community, because I think uh, it has felt a little bit in some ways like the perfect storm in this season that we've had all of these social issues arise and and division and um, everything with the election and where usually people would, you know, be going to church and kind of having their usual interaction, um, you know, with, with coworkers, with family members, with friends, we haven't been able to have that. And when you do just begin to look at people on a screen, there's kind of a, a switch, I think, that is so easy to make in our brains um, to where, you know, we'll, we'll change the language that we're using. We'll feel more comfortable being maybe more aggressive in our language, um, not thinking about the person's feelings that we're talking to. So that's such a, a I think, important element to keep in mind. Um, and then also, like you said, with, um, you know, we, we look at King David and, in, in the Psalms and obviously, <laughs> you know, uh, throughout history, we've seen so, so many highs and lows and um, individuals who have faced really, really challenging circumstances and have taken those challenges and those burdens to the Lord and um, the fruit that ultimately comes from that. So what what would be some of those practical tools that you could recommend for, okay, you know, as as people of faith or or even for our listeners who are not people of faith, how can we actually um, 
seek out to have and maintain steadfast faith in this season? So I'm really glad you asked me that question because I was pondering something that I wanted to say. And since you phrased your question that way, I'm going to go ahead and tell you what I was actually thinking. So I I think a lot of it comes back to social media and you know, that old garbage in, garbage out thing. I midway through last year, when I was going through a period of trying to adjust to this new reality we live in, I decided to just do kind of an audit of my social media. And I I decided to change the proportion of, you know, I didn't get rid of all of my political follows because, you know, that's my business. That's what I do. Um, but I, I really increased the um, the number of spiritually oriented accounts that I follow so that, you know, I'm you version, for example, is the is the Bible thing that I read the Bible app that I use on my phone. I started following them on Instagram. And I also started kind of doing an audit of of how I used social media in terms of, you know, because that's what in many for many of us, that's how you present yourself to your friends and neighbors and colleagues. And you know, there's kind of this caricature out there in the media right now about people of faith that we've been overtaken by politics. And in the narration in my head was very defensive, like thinking, come on, that's not fair. That's not who I am. And just feeling a frustration of wanting to push back against that caricature. And I thought, well, you know, I can do that on my own in my own space of, you know, what is it that I'm putting out there into the world? And so you'll find now, I mean, we all like to make fun of the little set pieces of our food. Um, and, you know, I try not to go overboard of set pieces of my food, but <laughs> I think that, I think that, you know, sharing, sharing things that show us as holistic people, as opposed to just a steady stream of political observations can be, at least in my mind, I formulated this of really challenging myself to show more elements of my life than just my political opinions. Because frankly, I think social media is a tough place to, you know, 140 characters does not necessarily a conversation start. But if there's something that means something to me, um, you know, I, I mentioned following you, Vision, I will frequently retweet or repost their scripture verses. And I actually heard from a friend that really kind of surprised me, not not someone that I thought of as um, as a fellow traveler of faith, who said that, you know, something that I had posted really meant a lot to them. And that encouraged me that people are watching more than we think they are in terms of what that consistent message is that we are presenting to people. And I think we should look at our social media presence as a real tool for pushing back against the cynicism and toxicity that we're surrounded by. Mm, That's encouraging because social media, of course, gets a bad rap. uh, And I think a lot of it is, uh, you know, is fair and, and just, it's obviously caused a lot of division. But if we can begin to think of it as, okay, how can I use this as a tool to actually maybe bring about some unity and to speak some truth. Because uh, I don't think that social media is going anywhere anytime soon. So it's certainly important to try to, I guess, make the best of it as we can. So I, I do want to ask you, you know, we're, we're hearing these calls for unity. Uh, we're hearing politicians refer to the need for unity. But unfortunately, I feel like what we're seeing uh so frequently in in our nation is this idea um, that you know in order to achieve unity we have to agree and 
I don't think that's correct. I don't think we all have to agree exactly in order to have unity that unity really looks like getting behind okay we we are all human we are all americans so let's find those areas where we have commonality um, and then let's move forward together so how do you think that we can stop thinking in this sort of us versus them mentality and actually begin to experience unity in our country Well, this kind of goes back to the things that you can control and the things you can control are your own relationships. And I think it's a challenge for all of us to search our hearts and search our actions and say, are there people that I'm interacting with in a positive and proactive way? And always, always, always reminding, remembering that there's a human being on the other side of of every one of your interactions. Are, Are we treating them with the absolute human dignity that we profess to believe. That's really the only only way that you can fight back is to be sure that you are approaching these interactions with the integrity that that we're called to and to take a stand for ourselves, to to be respectful, to be polite. That doesn't mean completely caving into an argument that we disagree with, but but always challenging ourselves to find ways to elevate the discourse, to elevate our conversations, and to find ways to connect to the other person as a human being. Yeah, I love that. Thank you. That's so practical. On the theme of unity, uh, I I did want to ask you a little bit about uh, your work in the pro-life field. And of course, the March for Life, the annual March for Life is coming up uh, at the end of this month on January 29th. And I love that this year, I think it's so appropriate, March for Life chose a theme of Together Strong Life Unites and uh, could not be more more appropriate or more important, I think, to have that theme of unity and life being a source of unity this year. Why is the March for Life such an important event every year, but especially this year? Well, I think in the midst of upheaval and uncertainty, having something that is a consistent theme that is is something to build around. And I love the fact that you've emphasized their theme, that that really does seem providential that unity appears in the theme as as we face one of the most uh, disunified times that that I've ever lived through in our in my lifetime. So, you know, going back to my use of treating other people with human dignity, you know, that's, that's what the March for Life is about, right, is recognizing the universal human dignity. And so I, I see that as kind of a linchpin and a solid foundation for all of us to come back to. And also providential is that it's right here at the beginning of the year as we're all kind of taking stock of what 2021 is going to look like and how, how we build after the difficulties of 2020. Absolutely. Dr. Yost, you, uh, I feel like, you know, these, these are the issues that you do so much work and research around. Would you just tell us how our listeners can follow your work? Oh, well, always starting with heritage.org at our heritage website and on Twitter, it's um, at heritage. I'm also on Twitter at Charmaine Yost, and we just love to interact with you at, 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 at either of those places. Dr. Yost, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks, Virginia. Great to be with you. 
Stay tuned because up next, we will be breaking down the new season of The Bachelor with our colleague, Michelle Cordero. But first, I want to take just a moment to tell you about one of the best ways to keep up with the news right now. The Daily Signal podcast, which I co-host with my colleague, Rachel Del Judas, brings you the top news of the day in interviews with policy experts, lawmakers, and conservative activists. The episodes are short, but packed with the information you need to know to stay on top of the news that you care about. So go ahead and subscribe to the Daily Signal podcast today on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen. So for some lighter conversation today, we are breaking down the new season of The Bachelor. The Bachelor kicked off their 25th season on January 4th and introduced the world to Matt James, the show's first African-American bachelor and the 32 women seeking his affection. Uh, I'll be honest, neither Virginia or, or I are regular viewers, so we've brought in an expert, our colleague, Michelle Cordero. She is the digital content manager for the Heritage Foundation and I mean, I'm not going to lie, this segment was totally her idea, but we're so excited to have her on. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you. You buried the lead too, right? Heritage Explains. The reason I wanted to do this is because I'm always talking to folks on podcasts about policy and why would I not want to take a break and talk about The Bachelor? (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I'll go ahead and put in a plug right now, Michelle, for your podcast, Heritage Explains. Um, It is honestly one of my all-time favorite podcast and I always walk away just like oh my goodness I learned so much and I know Lauren is a big fan of of long-form podcasts which is awesome I tend to be more of a fan of short form so I really love how like just short and information packed heritage explains is so definitely subscribe for all of our listeners if you haven't already thank you Virginia well Michelle let's start off Can you give us a summary of the 25th season of The Bachelor? There's been two episodes that have been released so far. So what do we know and what makes this season unique? Okay, well, so far, I already know you are not a viewer because even though there's been two episodes, every time they start the show, they do two episodes on one night. So you can get like back to back bachelor. Uh, we're already showing how yeah. naive we are. Yes. We're bachelor noobs. Yes. yes. <laughs> um, I don't have cable, you know, I'm, I'm all hooked up to my Apple TV. And so I watch it on Hulu. So I have to wait till the next day. And that pretty much means I have to stay off all social media so that I don't find out what happened. Um, but every, every time it's like one of those double episodes, my husband does this like extra groan of like, Oh my gosh, how many hours is this going to be on TV? Um, but so yeah, it was the first episode. And this is the episode where you get to know the bachelor and who he is. And then you get to know who the crazy girls are. And they're all pretty crazy. And then they do the whole bit where they get out of the limo and one of them has a crazy skit, you know, that they do to catch his attention. And then he he does the cocktail party where he meets them. And then he picks a bunch of them and lets a bunch of them go home. Um, But I think the standout for me and why I wanted to talk about this was because not only is he the first Black Bachelor, uh, but the first thing he did when he stepped into the room to meet all those girls is he didn't just want to make a toast, which is what usually is done. Let's make a toast. He wanted to say a prayer. 
And it actually was a really beautiful prayer. It wasn't one that I was like, oh, this is super canned. Um, I could tell he wrote it and he felt it. You can also tell he's nervous. He hasn't been on any show in the franchise before. He's a totally new character. And um, you could tell he was nervous and that his his love for God and Jesus was genuine. So Michelle, I, I mean, I, I, maybe I... I didn't give myself enough credit. I actually was hanging out with a guy friend of mine this weekend and he turned on Hulu on his own TV and he turned on the bachelor. He's like, Oh, we have to watch it. And I do just say this bachelor is very attractive. He's like seven feet tall and really cute. But I just like could not believe what these women were doing as they were getting out of the limo. Like it was, I know it, it was insane. Yeah, there's one that this is a family show, sort of, sort of, I guess, right? So, but I'm no, not going to say we're, what she we're did. Claim it. No, uh, she. It was bad, especially yeah. considering that he, you know, they're they're picking this bachelor and they're highlighting the fact that he's Christian. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, what did she just do? Yeah. Well, and then there was another one who showed up in her her drawers, you know, yeah. and was like, "Hey, can you pick out my dress for me?" Like. They, like, one girl, literally, Virginia, she lifted up her dress and she was wearing slippers and made her feet look like goat paws. And she yeah. said, you know, I hope you think I'm the goat, like, greatest of all time. Like, it, I just want to be inside these girls' heads as they're thinking through, like, their first impression of The Bachelor. I wonder, for so much of that, like, how much is that their idea versus how much is that the producer being like, hey, you should, or even, hey, you will do this just because it makes for good TV? I wonder that, too, every time I see it. And I know that there's some tell-all book out there that would answer that question. I've just never been able to bring myself to actually spend the money on it. (laughs) Um, I think that a majority of it is they're told. I would yeah. be willing to to bet that that's it. Some of them seem genuine. Some of them I'm like, come on, that was definitely staged. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I mean, obviously, like hearing about the stage stuff and all the antics of the women kind of confirms my like why I haven't ever watched The Bachelor. But hearing you talk about um, this guy's faith, that really piques my interest. Have we seen that before on The Bachelor, that kind of bringing up faith issues and and highlighting um, individuals on the show who have faith? So we actually have, but only recently. It's been about the past four seasons, not just The Bachelor, but also The Bachelorette, where you're seeing this play a bigger role. We had um, Hannah Brown, who is uh, from Alabama, I think they called her Hannah, Alabama. And uh, she was a really devout Christian and that was her thing and she was sticking to it. And she really wanted to make sure that her partner in life felt the same way. Um, And there was a lot of uh, the storyline that had to do with that. And then we had the next bachelor who was Pilot Pete. And one of the girls that he chose, her name was Maddie, and she was extremely Christian um, and had a real problem with the end premise of the show, that that he was going to be with these other women before he was with her, um, which was also similar to some problems that uh, Hannah had. And then we even go to the most recent Bachelorette, um, which was Taisha, and they didn't get into this completely. But it was known that there was three guys left. 
one of them she let go because she said in their fantasy suites, they talked all night and they came to the conclusion that they didn't see eye to eye on religion. And that was something really important to her and a big part of her life. And he seemed happy, not happy. He seemed understanding that that was going to be a big issue and they went their separate ways. And and now here we are. Yeah, I think that's just amazing that they've been willing to have individuals on the show that are so open about their faith. I feel like it adds a lot more depth and kind of reality to the show. Because, you know, for for any of us in relationships, in romantic relationships, that's obviously a really big factor of do we see eye to eye on the faith issue. So I just think that's cool. It is. And and in the past, they they did have one a long time ago. His name was Sean. And um, he married a girl named Catherine. And they're kind of well known in the Christian blogger, Christian podcast community, because I think they I think they both have their own podcast, but she is uh, frequently a guest on Christian women's podcasts. And they talk about how, you know, he made it known that he was a man of faith. Um and they were both okay with that, but that they've told the story that before he picked her, he had the producers bring her to his hotel suite so he could have a conversation with her to also let her know not only was he Christian, but he was conservative. And before he proposed to her, he needed to make sure she was okay with that. Mm, wow. Um, and so they they obviously didn't put that part on TV. But I mean, I've been thinking about this a lot and obviously it's okay to be Christian now. It's still not okay to be conservative. Hmm. I mean, it's all great. And, you know, I'm, I'm really happy to see representation and role models on TV. But I feel like a lot of times what happens is that the guys will make a big show of being Christian and they show their faith. And then, you know, when it comes down to the last couple of women, they go in the fantasy suites and, you know, they, they sleep with the women. And, and you know, and it, I think in a way it, it makes Christians look hypocritical. I mean, are are you afraid of that in this this season? I don't think so. They actually don't ever say exactly what happened. And actually, if something does go down, if the deed is done, they do say that they did. So unless they make it known, um, I think we're all left to believe that they talked. Now, maybe I'm just, maybe I'm naive, right? Maybe I'm silly for thinking that these things don't happen. Um, but I think with the case of Sean and, and Catherine, where, where he felt so strongly about his faith and his politics that he had to talk with her the night before that I'm going to guess he knew she was the one he was going to choose. And he did not sleep with those other two women. Well, hmm. Michelle, in general, what do you feel like really interests you about the Bachelor. I mean, why have you year after year continued watching The Bachelor, The Bachelorette? Uh, yeah, what what really piques your interest about it? Yeah, I've been watching since I was in college, and I'm not going to tell you how long ago that was because <laughs> then I'll seem really old. But I don't know. I'd like to say, I mean, I I just tend to like reality TV. I think some people do, and some people don't. The same reason we like different types of podcasts and different types of movies. But I mean, we all like to to pick a show where we don't have to think too hard, <laughs> especially in the the field the career fields that we're in. There's a lot of, I mean, I host a podcast on on policy, where it's breaking down wonk chat and making it understandable. Um, I think I like it because I can really just get some popcorn and 
not think about anything else other than kind of the trashy TV that's on in front of me. Um, and I, I, I don't want to, you know, I think that it's important that people don't ever label people for what they enjoy watching because it's really about just taking a break and giving your mind that break. So let's talk this season. Who do you think are the front runners? Any girls that you really don't like? Ooh, that's a good question. So I'm usually right. (laughs) I have narrowed down the top three every almost the past four seasons in a row. And I try not to cheat and look at reality, Steve, to see who the winner is. I usually (laughs) can make it up until the final three and then I have to go see. But it's too soon. Usually, whoever he gives a first impression rose to tends to make it to at least the top five. Um, That was actually something worth mentioning. The girl that he chose for the first impression rose is deaf. Hmm. Um, She has, you know, a medical device in her ear that helps her hear better. She's completely deaf without it. She does a lot of lip reading. And um, he picked her. And... She's a very pretty girl, but I don't think by any means like there, there were some other girls who he had connections with um, that he didn't pick. He really interests me. There was something he mentioned her vulnerability, the fact that she was vulnerable to him and that he could see who she really was, probably because she was self-conscious, um, that he liked. Hmm. And that made me like him even more. So I think she will definitely make it very far. That's really sweet. One thing I did notice that he liked about some of the women is what they were carrying behind them, because uh, you could always tell as they were walking away, the ones that he liked a little bit more. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't even notice that. Oh, yeah. Me and and my friend were laughing so hard at it. You know, (laughs) one girl would be like, oh, wow, she's really pretty. And then the next girl, he'd be like, oh, yeah, she's pretty. (laughs) So we also have to mention, too, his best friend, which is how he got picked on the show. Do you guys know who his best friend is and how he got picked for the show? I I do not know. So Tyler Cameron, I believe is his name, and Mm -hmm. he was the guy that Hannah did not pick, but that everybody just went gaga for, like totally head over heels. Everybody wanted him to be The Bachelor. He started dating Gigi Hadid. It had it added. Is that it? I don't know. Hadid? Hadid. Yeah, yeah. I knew someone <laughs> needed to fix me there. Um, but everybody loved him. And he honestly became more popular than any bachelor has probably been. Just, I mean, I'm shocked that, that they didn't pick him, but I think he was probably above it at that point. Um, that's his best friend. And so I really hope that they have him on. I think every woman in America hopes that (laughs) they have him on um, and that we get to see the two of them together. That makes a lot of sense. That's interesting. Well, whenever I watch reality TV shows or think about them, I always find myself thinking, okay, could I do that? Like, could I go through those same circumstances and be in the same situation as these people. So Michelle, if before you were married, you were given the opportunity to go on The Bachelor, would you have done it? Lauren, what do you think I'm going to say? Um, I think, I think you'd do it. Yeah. I think, I think you'd be hesitant, but like, you'd be like, okay, I'll do it. A friend actually signed me up. Really? (laughs) 
Um, but I, we never heard back and I just didn't pursue it any further. But yeah, I think I definitely would have done it. Like, I think the pitch was at the time that they signed me up, I was doing a lot of Fox News. And I think that they thought that would help get me on mm-hmm. because I could be, you know, that news girl that was on who knows what they would have done to assassinate my character. So it's probably best that it didn't happen. Uh, But I do think that I I would have done it. It might have broken me. Who knows? I mean, those girls get put through a lot. I feel bad for all of them because I'm I'm not sure they know what they're stepping into. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Virginia. I thought you were asking her if she'd be the bachelorette. Cause like, no, I'm, like go on the bachelor and like be among that oh, horde of women fighting. For- oh, absolutely. Positively. No way. <laughs> I mean, I'd be the bachelorette. I'd, I'd let the men fight over me, but like <laughs> I'd get there and I'd, there'd be so many other women. I'd be like, they can have them. <laughs> I'm out. Virginia, yeah. would you do it? You know, I, I would do it if there weren't cameras. I think the, the social like experiment aspect of it fascinates me. I I really like psychology. And so I think it would be such an interesting thing to be a part of, but I couldn't get past the fact that like my whole life essentially, and like my very private world was just being laid bare before the public to watch and be entertained by. Um, So in, in that regard, I don't think I could do it. Yeah, I think I'd rather go in like the millionaire matchmaker where it's like the whole, it's just the afternoon. You know, Patty Sanger's like, you, do you match with this guy? And you're like, I don't know. And then, you know, you're done. It's not, it's not like, I mean, those girls, they really do. Like, I, I can't imagine being in that. I mean, that this season it's a hotel, but normally it's a house, right, Michelle? Uh, no, it's normally a, a mansion in LA. Okay. Yeah, but you just uh, bared yourself. How how many seasons of Millionaire Matchmaker have you watched? Oh, uh, more than. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> oh. oh, too funny. Well, Michelle, we just love having you on. We're going to have to do this again soon. Maybe at the end, like for the final, we should do a wrap up of who we actually chooses. We can see if your predictions are correct. But thanks so much for coming on Problematic Women today. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And anytime you guys want to talk Bachelor, Bachelorette, (laughs) I am down. What the heck is trickle-down economics? Does the military really need a space force? What is the meaning of American exceptionalism? I'm Michelle Cordero. I'm Tim Desher, and every week on the Heritage Explains podcast, we break down a hot-button policy issue in the news at a 101 level. Through an entertaining mix of personal stories, media clips, music, and interviews, we help you actually understand the issues. So do this. Subscribe to Heritage Explains on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts today. Now, it is that time, once again, my favorite time of the week... Time to crown our Problematic Woman of the Week. And the crown goes to... First Lady Melania Trump. We want to thank Melania Trump today for her patriotism, leadership, and kindness as the First Lady over the past four years. Right from the beginning of her time as First Lady, she has sought to be a voice of unity in this nation through her Be Best campaign against bullying. The media has not often or really even ever, I think, given her fair coverage and ignoring much of the good work she has done and seeking only to criticize her. 
So today we want to share our favorite memories of the First Lady. Virginia, what's your favorite Melania memory? Well, I think I really uh, gained even a, a higher level of respect for the First Lady when in 2018, she took her first solo international trip to Africa. Uh, I lived in Africa for a year after college, so it has a very special place in my heart. And so it was just really great to see that, okay, she was putting special attention on this continent that can be so easily overlooked. And then I really admired uh, just how much she actually interacted with the people there that, you know, she visited schools and she was with the kids and you saw her really engaging and relating to the people. And the media, I feel like really focused on her clothes over that trip, which I will say were on point. <laughs> Uh, but much, much beyond just what she was wearing, it was definitely such a sign, I, I think, for all African nations that as Americans, you know, we want to be engaging with you. We want to be serving you. We want to be considering, you know, how we can work together, where we can build partnerships. So I just really respect her for being bold, for taking that trip and taking so much time in Africa. I think my favorite memory is, it's not like one specific instance. It's just, it's like with the Christmas trees at the White House, like they were fabulous. She's so fashionable and people would come and criticize her and it never shook her. She just was, you know, just fabulous the next day. And I think that just shows, you know, a lesson uh, of how to live your life, you know, just be confident in what you do and, and, you know, let the haters hate. Yeah, no, she definitely often, I feel like, just kind of let the criticism roll off of her, which you kind of have to do, I think, in that position. <laughs> well, a huge congrats to First Lady Melania Trump on being this week's Problematic Woman of the Week. But now it is time for our Twitter poll. So last week, we asked you all, is there a danger to replacing titles such as mother or father with general titles like parent and house rules? 66% uh, of you all said that it was a terrible idea to change that language in house rules. And 33% of you said that doing so sets a dangerous precedent. So thanks so much for everyone that checked out the poll and voted. And... Lauren, what do we have for this week? So this week's Twitter poll isn't actually a poll. It's a it's a question because we want to hear from you. I mean, it's a new year, new guests. Who do you want to hear from on Problematic Women? We definitely have some ideas and some big things in the works, but the show's about you. So Virginia's going to go ahead and tweet it. I'll let her say her handle uh, <laughs> in just a second. But uh, yeah, please take take some time. Go find her on Twitter. Make sure you follow her and let us know who you want to hear from in 2021. We love hearing from you guys. So please check out and respond to the question, which is posted on my Twitter account. You can check it out at, at Virginia underscore Allen five. And with that, that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world, and we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you do get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. Have a great week. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. 
we produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton. <laughs>